I'm just going to move this here, actually. So, yeah. so. all right. Uh, this morning's message is called Fighting for Doctrine. What was the first thing that went to your mind when you heard the title, Fighting for Doctrine? Was it, oh boy, hunker down, or I picked the wrong morning to not bring my pillow to church? Or maybe it's, can we go back and do that Christmas thing again? We really like the Christmas thing. But we're moving on in Acts now, and we're going to be looking at doctrine today. And oftentimes we think of doctrine as some dry, difficult thing that's above our heads. It seems oftentimes like doctrine doesn't apply to us. Or it seems like it should mean something to us, but we're just not quite sure what it means. But this morning we're going to go back to Acts, we're going to look at chapter 15, and we're going to see a battle for doctrine take place. And we're going to see what doctrine is and what it isn't. And we're going to find out what the right attitude is when we are fighting for doctrine. We're going to see what the result of it is, and ultimately we're going to see God's sovereignty in this all. So let's pray before we go on here. Father God, we come before you now and we look at something like fighting for doctrine. And Lord, it seems like it doesn't have any place for us. It seems like those are for the smart people. Those are for the people who read all the time and go to seminary and get degrees. And yet, Lord, doctrine is life. And doctrine is something that we need to know and we need to fight for. So Lord, we pray that you'll be with us this morning. Pray that you'll help us to take this and to understand it, to apply it to our lives, to make it become part of us, so that we are passionate for the things that you are passionate for. Let us love the things that you love, Lord. Be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So first of all, before we jump into the story, before we jump into Acts, we want to know exactly what doctrine is. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, A doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. And Jay Adams, in his commentary on Acts, when he's talking about the importance of doctrine, he says this. He says, We must realize that doctrine leads to life. How we live will, in the end, be determined by what we believe. All doctrine has consequence for life, and all such consequences at root are doctrinal. Avoid doctrine, and you avoid life. Astute counselors can trace many of life problems back to faulty doctrine. So we have these different doctrines. We have this doctrine of God, of man, of sin, and salvation, just to name some. And these you can find on our website. We have them on there. And in our book store and in the library, we have a couple of books by Wayne Grudem. He's got a real fat one that's called um, Systematic Theology, an Introduction to Biblical Doctrine. And then he has one that he condensed basically all that. It's called Biblical Doctrine. And the small one is, you know, I don't know, probably like 400 pages long or so. But it is smaller, but it's real condensed. So you can find out with some of these things if you want to. So we also want to know what doctrine isn't. And we're going to be looking at that a lot today. Doctrine isn't traditions. It isn't what we've always done. It's not the denomination. It's not an opinion or a judgment call as to what is the best thing to do. So today we're going to look at Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council. And they're going to come together and they're going to address a specific question, a specific doctrine. They're going to ask the question, what do we do with the Gentile converts? This has been a Jewish nation. This has been a Jewish church. 
And now these Gentiles are coming in. They're going to try to figure out how it is that they incorporate these into the body. The traditional way was for a Gentile to basically become a Jew. They would be circumcised. They would follow the Mosaic law. But now that Christ has come, they want to know what they're supposed to do. And we need to see how big this uh, thing is. So here's D.A. Carson. He says this. We have this on the board here. He says, um, these people, these were people who believed that the God of the Scriptures, there was, of course, no New Testament yet, but the God of the Scriptures was the same God who sent Jesus. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the answer to the Jewish questions, the fulfillment of Jewish law and prophets, sent by the same God who sent those laws and prophets. How could a person claim to accept Jesus and the Father who sent him while refusing to listen to the other things that God had said and asked? It must have appeared even to those Jewish Christians who were prepared to see the Gentiles become part of the chosen that they should do so completely and become Jews before thinking that they could become fulfilled, believing Jews. We can see how difficult this is, right? God has set this thing up over and over for the whole time, and this is what they followed, and all of a sudden, how can they reject what God has said to do with these Gentile uh, believers coming in? So that's what they were looking at. That's the question, and that's what we're going to do today. So in Acts 15, we're not going to read the whole thing at once, but we're just going to go, go through it and let the story unfold. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Acts 15, starting in verse 1. It says, but some men, some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here's where we are. The people in the church heard from Paul preach that you must be saved by faith through Christ alone. And this is how these Gentiles were saved. But now these other ones are coming in and they're saying, no, that's not enough. You're still not saved unless you follow these rules, these regulations, and this law. So this is the doctrine that's being threatened here. Are we saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, or do we need to follow some law as well in order to be saved? Is it faith alone? Is it works alone? Or is it a combination of these two things? And this is huge. This is a huge question, and we need to answer this today. And we need to know what it is today. But before we find out the answer to that, we want to look at how they handled this controversy. Because there's a right way and there's a wrong way when we handle these things. And here we have a picture of how the church in Antioch handled it, how Paul and Barnabas handled it, and later on how the Jerusalem Council handled it. And all three of these different groups of people handled it the right way. So we want to learn how they did it. So... First of all, the church in Antioch, they're confronted with some teaching that appears that it might be correct. It might be right that they are saved by Christ, but they have to follow this law. But they're not certain. And there's a lot at stake, right? Because these two teachings are diametrically opposed. You cannot have, have both. And so they send some people to Jerusalem. This is the spiritual center to find out what the answer is. Is. And we can assume that whatever this Council of Jerusalem is going to decide, 
that the church at Antioch is going to follow. That's why they sent them there to find out, find out the answer. This is so important that they do this. And this is so important that we understand this and that we follow this because it is with doctrine. Doctrine protects the church. And doctrine makes the church prosper in the ways that God wants it to do. If we follow God's will, the church will do well. The church will be protected. And so imagine what would have happened if they didn't fight this battle for doctrine, if they just let it go. This is basically the center of the Gentile church, of the Gentile mission. This is where they send out Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, when they come back, always report here, it all starts the Gentile church that starts at Zania. If they don't get this right here, if they don't get this right now, this spreads out everywhere. That it's not by faith alone. That it's not by Christ's alone. But there's something in that. So they fight for this doctrine. Let's look at Paul and Barnabas' attitude. In verse 3 says this, so being sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now just stop there and think about this statement. Think about what's going on, right? They are on their way to the most important meeting of their life and probably of the early church and one that impacts us today. They've just been confronted by those who oppose them and they have not succeeded. Because if they had succeeded, right, they wouldn't be going to Jerusalem. But they couldn't convince these people. And now they're going to go down to Jerusalem, and they're going to try to convince everyone. So you can picture them walking along, right? They're going to anticipate some kind of fight. They're going to anticipate some misunderstanding. They're going to anticipate some dispute. They might be planning. What are we going to say? How are we going to do it going through this? But what does it say? What does it say? They stop in Samaria, a place that no Jew would stop. And they go to Phoenicia. And what do they do there? They describe the conversions of the Gentiles and they bring great joy to all the brothers. This is the attitude that they have. How often do we have this attitude when we're going to meetings like this? How often do we stop and bring joy to others when our circumstances are so overwhelming and what we have that's coming our way is so great? How often in these situations do we stop and bring joy to our family? So let's look at verse 4 and let's see what happens when they get down to Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they get to the Jerusalem, right? And the, the church welcomes them. They can't wait to see them. They start talking to them, and they start telling them all these things that done. And I'm sure the church is probably eager to hear the story. They probably heard rumors or bits and pieces, and they want to hear what's going on. But all of a sudden, he's interrupted. And the battle begins. Some of the party of the Pharisees, this is the same party that Paul is part of, rise up. And they say it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them, to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, some of these people were clearly troublemakers. There is no question about it. They were troublemakers. We can see in Galatians that it says they were sent in to spy out the freedom that they had in Christ in order to, I forgot how it was written, but uh, basically bring them under bondage or slavery, I think it's written. Um, but I'm guessing that they weren't all like that. I'm guessing that some of these were believers. 
but they had been raised in this legalistic background. And now they're part of this church here. And they want to make sure, they want to make sure that this is right. Because it didn't sound right. Their whole lives they had been taught one way. This is the way it is. And now these two are saying, no, this is wrong. We don't need to follow the law. It is Christ. It's by faith alone. And it didn't sound right. And so this isn't easy for these people. This is very stretching. This is very difficult to change the way they had been taught, to change the way they have done things. But if it's right, if they're right, it is worth fighting for. So let's look at chapter, or I mean verse 6. 6 through 11 says this. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here's the doctrine. Here it is, all spelled out right in front of us. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, just like they will. The most amazing for them, thing for them is that God made no distinction. Up until then, God made a huge distinction. Israel was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be independent. They were not to be partners with the Gentiles. They were not to marry the Gentiles. They were supposed to be kept distinct. And now God is telling them there is no distinction for those who believe. For those who believe, there is no distinction. This, again, this changes everything that they ever believed. This is what they've been taught. They've been raised as children to be distinct. And now God's saying there is no distinction for those who believe at all. It is by faith alone, through Christ alone. That's enough to save you. It's not a matter of keeping this law, but it's a gift from God. Verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished, James replied. Can you just imagine what that was like, right? You're at this Jerusalem council. First Peter gets up, tells what God does. Then Paul and Barnabas get up, they start telling what God does. Now James gets up and starts talking to you. These were, these were the pillars of the church. This must have been wonderful to be here. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Notice how James states that. He didn't say Peter visited the Gentiles and Peter converted some. He says God himself visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God did it, not Peter. Reading on verse 15, he says this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. This is a question of doctrine. This is a question of extreme importance. And James goes right to the scriptures to find the answer. And James gets it. James sees this mystery of Christ, that God loves these Gentile sinners, and God will save them, and God will bring them in to the body. They will be part of the family of God. And so he goes on in verse 19. He says, Therefore my judgment, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from one who has been strangled, and from blood. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He says, why should we wait any longer? We understand this. Let's not trouble him anymore. But they should do a few things. Doesn't that seem odd? But they should do a few things. They should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, from blood. What on earth does that mean? We believe it's Christ alone, but they should do these few things. We believe it's faith alone, but they should do these few things. I thought it was grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Isn't this what the whole battle has been about? The whole battle has been about this. So it's important that we understand this point completely. Because it sounds like what the other guys are saying, right? The other guys say we must order them to keep the law of Moses. James says we should write to them to do these things. Is this doctrine or is this something different? Because it sounds the same. It's important that we get this because it is different. It isn't doctrine. Because verse 11 spells out the doctrine for us. It says we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the big clue is here in verse 21 when he talks about the Jewish people. He says, From ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in the Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, what he's he's saying here is this. He's saying they have followed this law everywhere for all time. This is who they are. This is in them. This is them. This is how they define themselves. And this doctrine of faith alone and Christ alone is going to be so hard for them to accept, for them to understand it and to accept it. He's saying, why make it harder? Why make it harder? There's a gulf between them that is so large it doesn't seem like you can cross it. So he's saying out of love and out of respect, keep away from these things that they see as the most profane. You're not going to be able to bridge this gap if you continue to do these things. In fact, you're going to cause them to stumble. And we can see Paul preaching the same thing in the book of Romans and in the book of 1 Corinthians. Look at this 1 Corinthians passage here. He says this. He says, Some through former association with idols eat food as as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do eat. 
But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So this is a difference between doctrine and judgment. And this addition about practicing good judgment about the weaknesses of the brothers and the sisters and Lord is totally aligned with this doctrine. We're just trying not to get them to sin by following this. We're trying to um, live holy lives so that they can see it. But it doesn't change the doctrine. Jesus Christ died for us. It was his sin. We can see this same concept worked out even fuller directly here in Paul as his relates to both Timothy and Titus when it comes to circumcision because he does two different things. Galatians 2.5, we see the story about Titus. He says this. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Titus is a Greek, and Paul will not circumcise him. And he, he tells us why. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. This is a fight for doctrine here. They're trying to bring these Christians into slavery. And Paul will not have it. He will not yield even for a moment. But then we look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. The very next story. We get done with the chapter we're doing with the Jerusalem Council. The very next story, we see Paul circumcising Timothy. And it seems to not even make any sense. But let's look at that. Verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. He says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So here he does circumcise Timothy. Right after he's done with this whole battle about saying, no, you don't need to circumcise him, Paul circumcises him. He says it was because of the Jews who were in those places. D.A. Carson says this. He says, Jews recognized Jewishness through the mother and not the father. Right? So it says his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy became circumcised in order so that he wasn't seen as a Jew who rejected God's covenant. Think about it. Everywhere that Paul goes on his missionary journeys, Timothy is now going to accompany him. First place he goes to is where? The synagogues. He's going to be taking into the synagogue a Jewish person who is not circumcised. 
They won't listen to him. They're not going to get it. They're going to see, here's a Jewish person who's trying to tell us about God's covenant, and he has rejected God's covenant. And so Paul says, for their sake, we're going to circumcise Timothy. And this isn't to deceive him. It's not so he walked in and said, look, this guy's deceived. Because what do they take with them? The letter from the Jewish council that says he doesn't have to be circumcised. So he's not deceiving him. He's doing this out of compassion and out of kindness. He wants to bridge this gap that's already built in, this cultural gap. And what is the result of it? That last verse says the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in numbers daily. Moving on, verse 22 says this. We're going to look at this letter that they sent because they end up sending a letter after the council has made this decision. But first, verse 22 says this. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So this is, we see right away, one of the results of this battle for doctrine. We see a result right away, and that is unity. It seems good to all of them, to the apostles, to the elders, to the whole church. And they are unified in this. So they end up choosing men. They decide that they want to send some men back with Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't enough for them just to send a letter back. But they wanted to go with them. They wanted to bring this news in person, to show them personally, and to bring the backing of the authority of the Jerusalem church with it as well. And they wanted to see firsthand this great work of God that these guys have been talking about, this whole Gentile mission. Wouldn't it be great to go to a place like that? To go to a place where you knew God would be? A place that he's working miraculously, that he's bringing people to himself, that these people are being discipled and to help disciple them? This is what we have in Alpha. This is one of the reasons that we have Alpha is to do these same things, to bring the word of God to disciple these people. And we have seen God working in Alpha. So reading on, it says this. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay in you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they, so they were sent off. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. These people at Antioch, didn't understand everything at this point. Just like there are many things that we don't understand. There's many of these doctrines that we don't understand. There's many things in the Bible that we don't understand. We might not even know much that's in the Bible. But like them, 
Or like us, these people of Antioch knew this. They knew that if they believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they were saved. That was the way to eternal life. It's not some law that they have to follow. It's not something that no one could ever follow before them. It's not a complicated way to live. They just needed faith because it's God that saves. And these guidelines on how to live at peace with these other uh, believers and the Jewish believers, they weren't burdensome at all because what does it say? It says they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Verse 32 says, And Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Judas and Silas, being prophets, do what prophets do. They encourage. They strengthen. May we prophesy. May we encourage. May we strengthen, especially new believers and weak believers and struggling believers. And after they spent some time... They were sent off in peace to the brothers, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many also. So they stayed in Antioch for some time. This must have been a wonderful time when you just stop and think about it for uh, Silas and, um, and Judas to be there. And, you know, they were encouraging, they were building up, they were disciples, they were prophesying over these people. All these, this great thing that people were so encouraged was building up. And I just look at this and I think, you know, they must have looked back at this for the rest of their lives and just remembered it was just such a great joy. And they probably wished that they could go back and do it again. But it was time for them to go. Verse 35 says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Didn't this seem harsh? Didn't this seem shocking that this happened? I'll be honest with you. When, it, when I started getting ready for this, I didn't really want to preach this part. And I was even tempted to call Pastor Paul and say, look, can we just stop at verse 34? Can we stop at that part that says they remain there teaching and preaching in the Word? You know, end with a happy thing. They live happily ever after. That's what I wanted to do, because this just seems so out of place that was in there. But this is what the text says. So there's something here for us to learn. And anytime there's such a sharp contrast, it is there to drive home a point. It's there so you won't miss it because it'll be so sharp. It's designed to be glaring. So let's ask the question, why was this story put here and not somewhere else? Yeah, they decided to part ways, but why put it here? Why now? Why after this Jerusalem council? This Jerusalem council unanimously, unanimously agreed to what to do about the Gentiles. We had Paul, we had Barnabas, we had James, we had Peter, we had the apostles, we had the elders, we had the whole church, and they all agreed what to do. And now we have two people. They can't agree. 
What's the difference? The difference is that one is doctrine and one is judgment. Remember the amendment to the letter, right? No blood, no strangle, all that stuff. This is just like it. It's another example of the difference between doctrine and judgment. And God wants us to know in no uncertain terms that there is a difference between these two things. Judgment is what's the best course of action to take. What should we do now? Whereas doctrine is the truth that God has given us in his word. This is absolute truth. Doctrine is critical. Doctrine is life. What we believe will make us who we are. But this wasn't a matter of doctrine. They agreed on doctrine. We just got done seeing that. But they were just trying to do, what's the best thing to do with Mark? One says, don't take him with. He abandoned us. He's not... We can't look at what we look at all the stuff we went through. We've been stoned, we've been beaten, we've been persecuted, we've been followed, mobs and stuff. He wasn't there with us the first time. Is it really a good thing to bring him with the second time? And the other one says, No, let's bring him bus. Bring him back. This is Barnabas. His nickname is Son of Encouragement. Or that's what his name means, is encouragement. So he's like, No. Let's bring him with. And he wants to bring him with. And he wants to give him a second chance. And he wants to build him up. He wants to be there when he goes through these tough times so he can stand next to him and do it. And so they just disagree on whether he should go or whether he shouldn't go. Jay Adams says this. He says, There are times when brothers must simply agree to disagree. They should not disagree over essential doctrine nor censurable offenses, but over matters of judgment, as this was. You know what we ultimately see here? In this whole story, including in this breakup, is we see God's sovereignty. And we see this woven out through this entire story. And Paul ultimately goes on and continues to work. For the next 13 chapters, we see him going on from place to place to place, bringing God's uh, word, bringing this message of faith in Christ alone to all these people, no matter what the persecutions are. And we see Barnabas and Mark, and they go on together, and they go to Cyprus. This is the Mark who later on ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. So we can see God's hand in dividing them because of that. And this relationship between Paul and Mark, which must have been... Uh, totally hurtful at this time to Mark, ends up being restored. When Paul is in prison, waiting to be executed, abandoned by most, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him to me, for he is very useful to my ministry. So in conclusion, there is a time to fight for doctrine. And there's a right attitude when fighting for doctrine. And there are results when a fight for doctrine has been won. It is unity. It is rejoicing. It is people being strengthened and encouraged. It is the church being protected from false teachers, false brothers, false teaching. How much of the New Testament, how much of Jesus' writing is against false teaching, against false brother. James in Galatians says, you know, oh foolish Galatians, how have you been bewitched? You know, what you started in the spirit, how can you, I forgot how it is, but basically keep on in the law. Um, I should have had that by notes before talking. But 
But anyway, we can see God's sovereign hand in all of this. So the question is, are you fighting for doctrine or for a judgment call? And in this specific battle that we looked at today, are you fighting for the doctrine of faith alone in Christ alone? Or are you fighting to include works in salvation? And you might not think that you're fighting, but it might just think that you assume that you need to be good, that you need to do works in order to be saved. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, it is by grace that we are saved. It's not works. And this also says, not only is it not by works, but we are God's workmanship. And these works that we do are because God saved us and that God prepared them for us. The band can come up as we close. If you are fighting for doctrine, fight on. We need people to fight for the right doctrine. Because this is what's going to protect the church. This is what will make the church prosper in God's way. Doing what God has us to do. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, fasten on the belt of truth. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For this is ultimately God's fight. And doctrine is worth fighting for. Father God, we come before You now. And Lord, we pray, first of all, again, that we will love the things that You love. And You love doctrine. You love the truth. And You have given it to us here in Your Word. And the doctrine that they fought for today was of supreme importance. How are we saved? Is it through faith alone in Christ alone? Or is it faith in Christ and obeying the law? Is it you can't be saved if you don't obey the law? You can't be saved if you don't live the right way? You can't be saved if you're not a perfect person after you think you've been saved? Or is it faith in Christ alone? It is you, O Lord, who save us by faith alone. So, Lord, let that truth, let that truth be like a steel rod, unflexible, unwaverable, that we may fight constantly for that. And, Lord, just help us to understand that. And as we live our lives and these other issues come up, let us stop and think, is this doctrine or is this judgment? And if this is judgment, Lord, let us be like Paul. Let us be like Barnabas and set aside these things, Lord, that we may lead holy lives, that we can bridge this gap, that we will not cause our brothers to stumble, Lord. So let us add holy living to the doctrine of being saved by faith alone. We only add holy living, Lord.
It doesn't change the doctrine. The doctrine is solid. So we thank you for this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song. We don't have a song about the conflict over Barnabas and Mark and that whole bit, so we'll end with joy to the world. You know, last time I preached and Paul wasn't here, I came up and I said, I forget what he said all the time. And so this time I'm like, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to have a, uh, a, a uh, benediction ready to go. And now I can't find it. <laughs> I don't know how he does it week after week. Here we go. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Yard Smith.